Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. I've got three very special guests today. Colonel Walt Ledbetter, Marine Helicopter Pilot, Commander of the 263rd Marine Helicopter Unit in Marble Mountain, Vietnam. One of his lieutenants, Duncan McRae, who's a Columbia restaurateur now. And Clint Chalmers, who has been working with members of the 263rd and assembling a video history of the unit. I'll have this conversation about Vietnam veterans and their experiences in 1969 and 70. But first, your NPR news break. With me in the studio today are three gentlemen who are working on an audio and video memoir of Vietnam, specifically the 263rd Marine Helicopter Medevac Unit. Their former commander, who now lives in Beaufort, Colonel Walter Ledbetter. One of his pilots, Duncan McRae, who folks who live in Columbia know him as restaurateur extraordinaire and the (laughs) co-owner of Yesterday's. And Clint Chalmers, who has been a field producer for this project, and it's got a very interesting name. It's called the Peach Bush Book Club. When they first came to me and said, we've got this Peach Bush Book Club and we want to talk about Vietnam, and I thought there's a real disconnect here. Colonel Ledbetter, why don't you explain to our listeners where Peach Bush comes from? Peach Bush was a call sign assigned by the Pentagon to to my squadron, and uh, every squadron was assigned different call signs, and some of them were very uh, heroic-sounding, and unfortunately, uh, we sounded uh, a, a little sissy, but uh, <laughs> I don't think the squadron was. We did uh, All these lieutenants did an uh, unbelievable job, and I was really proud of them. Colonel, I want to start with you, you know, a little bit of who you are and how you got into being a Marine helicopter pilot. Well, that's... Uh, I, I started out as... Uh, I went to the flight school in the jet syllabus and and flew fixed-wing aircraft for the first probably 10, 11 years of my career, and then the, well, maybe a little longer than that. But when the Vietnamese War started, uh, they were short of helicopter pilots, and they were uh, the helicopter community was really where they stored a lot of very poor pilots, and they didn't pay much attention to it. And they knew this was going to be a, a helicopter war, so they took uh, 10 fixed-wing pilots a month from each coast and just put us in helicopter squadrons and said, learn to fly them. And that's uh, that's what they did to me. <laughs> uh, I was kicking and screaming because I had uh, had degraded helicopters all of my career. And uh, after my first week in the squadron, I came home on Friday night and I look, I guess I really looked dejected. And my wife asked me, what's the matter? Can't you fly them? And I said, fly them? Hell, I can't even taxi the damn things. <laughs> <laughs> and then it sort of comes to you. It's like riding a bicycle. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And I, I never got, I never left helicopters after that. And it was, uh, well, I, I flew other airplanes uh, off and on, but then more I was. And, and you were a career officer. How long did you stay in the Corps? I was in the Corps to, uh, uh, 29 years. Okay. Uh, I was trying to figure out what I, what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I could never figure that out. So I just <laughs> stayed with it. You stayed with it and then retired, and you're now living in Beaufort. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Duncan, a yeah. little bit of background on you, please, sir. Okay. I was uh, raised in Pennsylvania, Went to, graduated from Rutgers, and the day I graduated, I got the draft notice, jumped on a bus, went up, took the draft physical, they only called about 50 names out of 200 people. I was one of them. I thought, oh, good, I flunked. No, I was one of the ones that passed. So I immediately went down to see the Marine Corps recruiter and got into flight school and saw all sorts of pictures of jets and all those fancy airplanes. When I graduated from OCS, they had, uh, of the 30 AOC pilots or trainees that they had, they had three openings for what the Navy and Marine Corps calls fixed wing and 27 openings for helicopters. And at the time we were being sent to the army flight school because they needed pilots. So Down badly. Fort Rucker. I, I started out actually in uh, Fort Walters, Texas. Oh, okay. Anyway, they were paying $30 a day or $900 a month TDY. 
so my hand went flying up. <laughs> my next stop was the uh, Chevy dealership to buy a Corvette, and then I went to flight school. <laughs> <laughs> a typical lieutenant. <laughs> what color was the Corvette? It was uh, sky blue. Ooh, okay. Uh, the folks from North Carolina would have loved me. <laughs> <laughs> Already fitting into the South. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah. and Clint, how'd you get raked uh, into this? Raked into this product. Yeah. Uh, actually, it was kind of funny because um, uh, Rafe uh, came up to me with his usual eyes wide. Or, or, let's take a minute and, men and mention Rafe because he kind of got this project started. Right? Yeah, it's basically it's Rafe's completely Rafe's baby. It was his whole idea. Originally, Duncan wants to do a book and that was the original idea was to do a book and Rafe, Rafe decided that it had to be a video and uh, the thing that was funny was he was talking to me one time he was like well now how am I going to do this and I went well that's funny because I've been a field producer for about 24 years and shot all over the world and whatnot. I said well you know if it's, if it's something simple we'll put quotes on simple we'll see what happens and of course it became much more complicated. Clint when you say Rafe you're talking about Ralph Jones or yeah. Rafe Jones uh, who first contacted me about it, and then you fellows went in for a State Humanities Council grant. But Rafe is no longer with us. He died last spring, tragically, uh, in a house fire. But that was the genesis of, the, of this project. Uh, yes, another person named Finn, Finbar Dunphy. Finbar Dunphy is a local author, and uh, if I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dunk, but uh, you wanted to have a book done about this, you know, about this story. Right, that's where the Peach Bush Book Club and, and came Ra from. And Rafe and Finn were like Mutt and Jeff. You couldn't see one without the other. And Rafe got it in his head to make it into a video, and that's how the video genesis started. Mm -hmm. But it's still more of a book kind of experience, and that's that's been the problem with it. Um, we, you know, Rafe did approach you, and uh, he did approach the Humanities Council and got a small grant um, that was enough to keep it going for a little while but not enough really to finish the project, and there you have it. Uh, it was Rafe, Duncan, and myself on that uh, steering committee, so to speak, hoping to find someone that would like to write this story. The 263rd was, you were stationed in I-Corps, were, were you not Colonel Ledbetter? Yes, sir, we were at uh, Marble Mountain, which is just right across the river from Da Nang. Yeah. I was stationed in Quang Tri well, yeah. City with uh, Mac V. Our, our helicopter boys were the Black Cats. They were our neighbors. So, in in uh, Marble Mountain, yeah, I'll be darned. Yeah. The yellow sun or yellow moon with the cat sitting on a fence post. Yeah, I'll be darned. Yep, with his tail up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I traded a flight jacket for a minigun to that squadron. <laughs> or I guess you called them companies, didn't you? Yeah. Our our mascot, our symbol for the squadron, was a little uh, gopher with its tail up, twirling like a rotor blade, and the slogan was "Gopher broke." Let's talk about, Duncan, after you got through flight school, were you assigned to the squadron, and the, did the squadron go overseas as a unit? How, how did y'all do that? Uh, no, I got assigned to the squadron. As a matter of fact, Walt was the CO when I got there. I was an Army-trained helicopter pilot, and I, I was immediately assigned to coffee mess. And then I learned how to fly the 46. <laughs> so the Marine chopper was different. The uh, yeah, I was the CEO of a training squadron in New River, North Carolina, and what we were doing was training pilots to go to Vietnam. And they, everybody at that point went on individual orders. They already had the squadrons there, and they just sent replacements in and out. Mm. And uh, I'd come from headquarters, Marine Corps, where I had a job, and then I, when I was assigned to New River, and they made me the CEO of, of a training squadron for a year. And so I trained, you know, Helen, we were pumping out a lot of pilots and crew crew members all every month. And so when I got to Vietnam, uh, I got a 46 squadron at Marble Mountain. And uh, most of the young lieutenants in the squadron had been through my training squadron. Okay. So it was a lot of fun. It was just, uh, there were five or six poor, I would say unfortunate lieutenants who uh, their only CO for the nearly the entire time they were in the Marine Corps was me because they'd gone through the training squadron. Then they were in my squadron in Vietnam, and when I was transferred from there, I went to Hawaii, and I had uh, two squadrons there. And uh, 
and they followed me along. So I had to. I was one of the lucky ones. I had five or six (laughs) young fellows that never got a fitness report from anybody else the whole time they were in the Marine Corps, except for me. And uh, And so, so if you didn't lock them, they were in. They were in deep trouble. (laughs) And I have to tell you that I like most of those kids. I mean, young young men, and and we still see each other. I went through the training squadron, and when I got to Vietnam, they started naming. Which squadron do you want to be in? And I asked the right question. I said, well, who's the CEO? And they started going down. They said, Peach Bush, Walt Ledbetter. Well, there's no way in the Dickens I would have picked Peach Bush except that they mentioned his name. I said, that's where I want to be. <laughs> All right, so what, what time frame are we talking about now, gentlemen? Uh, when you all over there. This 1969. 69 and 70. Okay. Uh, well, I'd been in Vietnam in 62 and in 64 and 5. And then, unfortunately, in between, they'd stick me in a headquarters job. So we're, we're, we're talking about 69 and... 69 and 70 so, when we were in Vietnam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And most people seem to think, looking at, as a historian, of course, first of all, to most folks, Vietnam is now ancient history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it might as well be the Peloponnesian Wars to, <laughs> yeah. to, 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 right. to a lot of folks. <laughs> and And they seem to think that once the Paris peace process began, that basically the war stopped. But that wasn't true in ICOR. It wasn't true anywhere in Vietnam, yeah. I don't think. It was uh, that uh, the more Americans that killed, the quicker the Vietnamese were going to win it. You know, and then they, they, they kept up the pace. The enemy was very good at talking at the peace process while prosecuting the war and building a better bridge. Mm. And, you know, and they did a very good job of that. I think the reason anybody's interested in this time frame was, especially, say, 263, the squadron, was that... Uh, the Tet Offensive of 1968 was a big political mm-hmm. war. I mean, that's what really got us out of the war. There was going to be a Tet Offensive of 1970, and uh, the object of that Tet Offensive was to take Da Nang. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we were assigned to do uh, was we were assigned basically to the 1st Marine Regiment, which because the Vietnamese were looking for a way to get into Da Nang. And the corridor they were going to come through was between the 5th Regiment and the 1st Regiment. So the month of January of 1970 and half of the month of February, we flew what was called Kingfisher missions. And we would take a platoon, a a reinforced platoon from the 1st Regiment. There would be a Huey go out and look for somebody that was in a place they shouldn't be. And I took 346s and four Cobras and followed this. Right, let, let's let's define when you start when you start using numbers for aircraft and what have you. A lot of our listeners out there don't know what you're talking about. Okay, uh, my aircraft was a CH-46, the Sea Knight, and it carried you could carry up to 25 Marines in it. The Huey uh, H-1 was a, a smaller aircraft that would carry the pilot and the co-pilot and a couple of gunners and then observers. Mm-hmm. And that was they, they would go out in front of my 46s by a mile or so and look for people that, in designated areas, look for people that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And I flew low. They flew about 1,500 feet. I'd fly low so nobody could, they couldn't see us coming. And our job was to land not 100 yards away from these troops that shouldn't be there. Our job was to land right on top of them. <laughs> and I mean, when that... Mm-hmm. happened we were in a hornet's nest every mm-hmm. uh, i led the first 36 missions and uh well, it all right you, you colonel as commander you led that yourself a lot of people in similar positions commanders didn't always lead those missions well that that was my job i mean oh. i was supposed to i was the commanding officer i'm supposed to lead them and that is a flight leader and uh, so uh i uh, i try i've told my operations people to only assign uh, our, my lieutenants to only fly five of those missions a month because we got shot up so badly every time you went. And uh, I didn't think they they were going to be in the squadron for a year. I was only going to be there six months. And I figured my six months was coming to an end and I was going to, uh, I could I could do it better than they could. I considered myself the best CH-46 pilot in the world at that point in time. That's really conceited, and that's what I was supposed to do. Mm. And so I, I did that until they, my time was up, my six months was up, and they relieved me. And as you said earlier, Walt, uh, a lot of CEOs wouldn't have done that. 
And but. 30 and 40 years later, the, uh, the respect is still here because he did do that. Yeah. He led from the front. Well, uh, and, and also, Colonel, when you said after six months they relieved you, normal combat unit command time where the Marines or Army at that w was six months. Yeah. That they put, you got a year's credit for it. I know the Army boys did. You got a year's credit, but they only, because that was so as many people could get command time and, as possible. And that's wrong. I mean, you know, they should have left me there for a year. I mean, and the CO should have been, been in mm -hmm. there for at least a year. And you could have then not led everything. You could have taught other people. You could have done. And But by leading every all the bad ones, uh, by the end of six months, I was a shattered human being. I, I couldn't hold a drink in one hand. It took both <laughs> hands to hold it because I shook so hard. And, uh, uh, you know, I... At the end of six months, I had to be relieved whether because I was a I was a wreck. Yeah, when we flew Kingfisher, we knew we were either going to get shot up or shot down. <laughs> there was always something happening. Yeah, dragging for the tracers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Duncan, how old were you then? I landed in Vietnam on my twenty fourth birthday. Okay. And so I was probably twenty four and four months when we started doing Kingfisher. And, and if you look in the in the in my journal there, you'll see that Kingfisher's mentioned quite a few times. For our listeners out there, we've done programs with, with, with other veterans, with World War II veterans. And when they have personal papers, I have mentioned that these these are really very special. And this is this is Duncan McRae's diary. And the South Carolina Historical Society in Charleston has a growing collection, which they basically call South Carolinians in uniform. And they've got uh, material obviously going back older, but they're more interested now in trying to collect the 20th century. They've got some fabulous World War I material, World War II, a little bit of Korea, which really does seem to be the forgotten war. Mm -hmm. But younger officers and enlisted people from Vietnam, and then we've got uh, particularly reservists or National Guardsmen who were in Iraq and Afghanistan have put material there. And so, Duncan, I would hope that your diary, your Vietnam diary, at some point, you would see that it's there because it's it's a real piece of history. And even though you started off up north, you chose to make South Carolina your home, and you're part of the South Carolina story of uh, men in uniform. So uh, why don't you it find probably a, will end up there? <laughs> why don't you find a passage there? But in the in the meantime, uh, uh, here's a good one. Yeah, it was on Jan Tuesday, January the twentieth. Flew Kingfisher, took four hits. Gunny Scott shot in the shoulder. My crew chief was hit in the leg. Wasn't scared till I got home. Looked at the holes in the airplane. Decided I would really look forward to going to the Philippines the next day. <laughs> <laughs> what, were you going on R&R &R the next day? I was going to what they call Jess School, which is jungle escape and survival training. Really what it was was a... A trip to the bars of the Philippines. It was a lot of fun. Four, well, three nights, four days, and you got out of country and you could sleep without worrying about rockets and people shooting at you. It was fun, and that was that's where I went the next day after I got my airplane shot up and two of the people on my plane hit. So, and as as a matter of fact, when we came back on this, when Walt was leading, he was shot up also. We had to roll on at, at Marble Mountain because we couldn't the, the birds couldn't fly that very that well anymore. <laughs> Explaining it, they had to roll on when you say. Well, we we couldn't count on the controls and the engines working if we came into a regular landing because we didn't know whether it would work or not. So we came in very shallow, and rolled down the runway on the wheels until the plane came to a stop because we thought we might have lost hydraulics or a rotor might break or something. Yeah, so we were just, we were, it's a, it's a careful way of landing an airplane that's, that's beat up. But when you say airplane, you're really talking about a well, helicopter. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you couldn't hover anymore. They were worried about hovering. They were worried about hovering and dropping like a rock. And yeah. power. So this is Things breaking. <laughs> yeah. Every Kingfisher mission, when when you landed on top of enemy troops, you uh, you've really got shot up. And, and uh, the different airplanes I flew for that six-week period, they told me later that I had taken more hits in those different airplanes combined than the rest of the entire First Marine Aircraft Wing. <laughs> uh, I'd, one day I took 57 hits in the cockpit. 
which was very exciting. And uh, I don't know, probably 300 hits in the airplane. And my door gunner was, was shot. Uh, the, it didn't kill him. He was, in the, was hospitalized. The, uh, uh, and everybody, a helicopter was, is just a, a, a tube, a flying tube of, of, of light metal mm-hmm. with the rotors on top of it. And if, it, if you don't hit the right place, it, it continued, just puts a hole in one side and goes out the other and doesn't bother anybody except it scares them a little bit. It, it could take a tremendous beating. I mean, you'd end up back home with just holes all over the airplane and absolutely nothing wrong with it. We were in, the six, in that six-week period. We carried nearly every day the same, darn near the same platoon. Those poor guys mm-hmm. were just in the, I, I can't imagine what they went through. But we were credited, they were credited with killing over 600 NVA troops. And mm-hmm. most of them were what they called pistol carriers. They were officers and scouts looking for, uh, looking for a way to come into Da Nang. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely at the end of the six-week period before Tet, the NBA had decided they couldn't get into Da Nang. We, that was what we were supposed to do, and we did it. It was, uh, it was a, like I say, it was very exciting. It was uh, more than you wanted to go through. But uh, All right. We need to pause and let our listeners know that you're listening to Walter Edgar's Journal, and I've got with me Duncan McRae, Colonel Walt Ledbetter, and Clint Chalmers talking about the Peach Bush Book Club project. Now, one of the things you all also were involved with was medevac, was it not? Yeah. Mm. And in, in terms of saving the lives of our, our combat troops, be the Marine or, or Army, that was an incredible job that, that you guys did because you could get them off the field of battle back to critical care relatively quickly compared to Korea or certainly World War II. Well... It was uh, uh, unbelievable, but uh, how, what they did at what we call Charlie Med, that was, that was the emergency uh, when you brought in wounded. They had a medical unit specially trained to take care of the wounded, and uh, they could repair nearly anything. It was unbelievable. And we, we stood medevac in a special place. We'd go over, and, and when the radio uh, called, uh, we could be airborne and, and less than, say, a minute and a half, two minutes. It was just, bang, you were just flew right out of the uh, revetment and uh, mm. be on your way. And uh, we rotated that all the time. I and mean, we, we stood medevac nearly every other day, the squadron did, and a, a sister squadron would take it the, the other days. And uh, I don't know how many hundreds we picked up. I'll give you uh, one specific day. Uh, my crew chief got the Medal of Honor that day. We had uh, we had inserted three different platoons. It was during a Kingfisher mission in three different positions. All three platoons were in a big fight. The first platoon is uh, after I'd put them in, I had to go back in and pick up uh, medevacs out of that position because they were already there were five of them wounded in there and took them to Charlie Med. We went back put the second platoon in a blocking position, and they were in a fight. I went in and picked up a, one guy in the middle of the fight uh, who had lost his foot. And uh, as I was flying him to Charlie Med, he had the crew chief and the, uh, the, one of the gunners drag him up to the cockpit so he could thank me for picking him up. Can you believe him? This was the kind of young men we... It was unbelievable. Uh, I'd never had that happen before. And uh, by the time I got back, We'd put the third platoon in, and they walked into a, inadvertently walked into a minefield. Ooh, okay. And uh, there were 19 of them. And I was just coming back from the second medevac, and uh, they called me on the radio and said they, what the trouble they were in. And uh, so I, I, I landed in the minefield mm-hmm. as close as I could to the uh, one of the groups that was wounded. And they were... Eleven of them wounded. There were already three dead, and uh, I guess five that weren't weren't wounded. And uh, my crew chief was hanging out the at the door, directing me, trying to put put one of the you know, as many wheels as he could in a in or where my mines had gone off, except he was putting the back wheels <laughs> in in the in the holes and. The front wheel was where I was sitting sitting over. <laughs> <laughs> it was really scary to put it down. But uh, 
and 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 I directed all the people in the airplane. I said, "Do not get out of this airplane. You just, you'll just become part of the problem." And uh, he he was Mike Clausen was his name, and mm-hmm. he he really didn't listen to me. And how old was he? He was probably uh, nineteen at okay. that point. Maybe mm-hmm. at the most it was twenty. Mm-hmm. And this was his third tour in Vietnam. He'd been there two two straight years, and he was on his third year. I didn't know that. I didn't realize how much he'd flown, but uh, uh, I'd have, I would have grounded him if I'd known how much he'd been in there. But uh, as soon as we landed, he just walked right off the back ramp and started picking up people and dragging them into the airplane. And then mm-hmm. we moved, we you know, flew over to another position, and as soon as I touched down again, he went out and picked up wounded and uh, and dead. And we we left there with 19 Marines in that airplane and uh, took them to Charlie Med. There was uh, one young man that was wounded 40 times. You know, uh, uh, Frank McKeever was his name. He, I've met most of these young people since then. He didn't lose any limbs, but there were th- three of them with their legs blown off. Mm-hmm. And uh, one above the knees. His name is Bruce Krushank, and he was, uh, he was a forward air controller, a first lieutenant, uh, A-4 pilot. Mm-hmm. He had a... He wanted to be a... He, he wanted to be a, the rest of his life he had planned to spend in, in aviation because he had a degree in aeronautical engineering. And there he'd lost both legs above the knees. That, that fellow went home. He's got artificial legs. You, and he walks with two uh, canes. And he has absolutely no handicap. He, he fought the FAA for seven years until they had to give him his pilot's license back. Uh, he has home built three airplanes by himself. He built a, a system to to uh, hook to the front wheel of his airplane with a battery. It looks like a walking cane with a with a, a little uh, battery on it and an electric motor. He attaches it to the front wheel and he can he can he can dr- drag that airplane out of the hangar by himself. He's uh, hooked a system to the rudders so he could attach his feet to the his artificial legs to the rudder so he could control it. Heck, he flies all the time, flies all around. And, and uh, uh, he's just finished his third airplane. Oh. And, and he is also the vice president of an aviation supply company. Now, he doesn't consider himself handicapped. And that, I say, mm. is a real man. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, uh, let, let's, get, let's get back to your crew chief. Yeah. Mm. He, he contends that the reason he got out of the airplane six times and walked around the minefield was because he was late for the hop that day. And uh, my, one, of my, one of the gunners was my sergeant major. And, of course, I was the CO of the squadron, and the crew chief was late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said he had to do something spectacular or he was going to get court-martialed. <laughs> <laughs> and he really did something spectacular. Mm-hmm. That, uh, it was just uh, it was incredible. And... Uh, I, well, I started the process of writing him up for the Medal of Honor, and I knew he was going to get it, and he did. Well, now let, let, let's just stop for a minute and talk mm-hmm. about that, Colonel, because people don't seem to understand that, first of all, the, the criteria for you as even as a, as a unit commander to put that in, it's very, very stringent. And then it, it sometimes takes a year or more. A vetting process goes all the way through to the Pentagon. Oh, yeah. And anywhere along the line, they, it can be downgraded. They can downgrade it yeah. to Oh, star. It was. Listen, that was one of the well-deserved medals because he's picking up people that you know they put mines in in clusters. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of them had gone off and blown off this guy's legs. He walked out there and it would pick him up, bring him in the airplane. In that cluster, you don't know where the other mines are, and they also they were all under fire at the same time. There was a sniper shooting at us all along, which I mean, was. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he he literally risked his life to bring mm-hmm. 19 Marines back into well, the... He was carrying a, 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 one of the wounded into the airplane and somebody else stepped on a mine again and it knocked him down. He, you know, he got up, picked the guy back up, brought him into the airplane. The guy that stepped on the mine died. That was a corpsman. Uh, that the young corpsman was, uh, knew where he was and he was running across the minefield towards some wounded people when he died. That was a day of just absolutely unbridled courage. I've never seen people that did things like mm-hmm. like that. And uh, when I got back from the, the second medevac, coming toward the minefield, one of my wingmen, a young lieutenant, was going to land. 
you know, I waved him off because it wasn't his place to do that. So, uh, you know, but he, if it hadn't, if I hadn't done it, the whole anybody in the squadron would have done the same thing. I mean, it was just uh, incredible. Where is that young crew chief now? He's passed away, unfortunately. But, uh, uh, he ended up uh, his third year in Vietnam and came home, and he'd flown 1908, over 1,980 combat missions in three <laughs> years. Think of that. I was going to say, he didn't have enough room on his chest for the air medals. That's right. He had nearly, and I'm not, I'm not being, not being no. facetious, but I mean... That's right. Well, you get, uh, for every 20 combat missions, you get an air medal. Yeah, and I, you know, I can't even divide it, I mean, which is... Uh, yeah. uh, it, 900. No, no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, no for, it's 90 or somewhere Yeah, yeah 90. I mean, still. Yeah. Uh, 95 of them. Yeah. yeah. But it's unbelievable. And he, I'm sure he arrived there, he was 18, mm-hmm. you know, years old. And at the end of the third year, he's 21. Mm-hmm. And he had seen more in the back end of a CH-46, med, you know, flying medevacs all the time. Or re, and we also flew recon teams into, into zones all over in, the, in really bad places. And, and when they got in trouble, we went back and, and got them out, mm-hmm. which was, those were very exciting missions. But, oh, uh, recon? We yeah. used to call them swift, silent, and surrounded because every time we went to pick them up, we got shot at. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it was... Uh, they had a little business card they used to, to hand out that said "Swift, Silent, and Deadly." We changed it to "Swift, Silent, and Surrounded." <laughs> you knew when they when you were going in to pick one of those guys up if they were whispering it was probably because the bad guys were real close. Yeah. Well, you know, let's let's talk about the the terrain in in Northern Icor, which is the terrain in that part of the country. It's somewhat different from it is down in the Delta, where people that's been in a lot of movies. You know, yeah, there was the, that TV show Marble Mountain, but. Yeah. I don't think it really cap- you The mountains come almost to the sea, and then you've got this very rugged terrain with triple canopy jungle mm-hmm. behind that going all the way to the Laotian and Cambodian borders. And we had, around Da Nang, you had uh, Delta, uh, rice fields and uh, that sort of stuff. There were deltas, yeah. And, uh, but all of that, we had finger mountains all through it, and it was just triple canopy jungle and uh, people that really didn't like you. <laughs> you could see the mountains in the jungle from... When you walked out of your hooch and went to work, mm-hmm. yeah. it was it was right there. It was a little harder to fly in the mountains than it was around flatland. Well, I arrived in Vietnam in, in, in just a little before Duncan did in the last part of August. And from August all of, until February, you had the monsoon season. Yeah. It, it, and it just, you know, I really never minded uh, bullets. I mean, people shooting at us. Uh, that I mean that you know that really didn't scare me that badly, but what scared me was uh, night medevacs going at night, and we went an emergency medevac meant that a marine was dying. If you didn't go, he was going to die, and uh, we flew Beyond up, up in those mountains in the pitch black nights, under you know clouds. One night, I was standing night medevac and got an emergency medevac call. The overcast was about 400 feet. I flew under, you know, flying along about 400 feet, and a medevac package was two, two 46s and two Cobras. Mm-hmm. The Cobras I, as basically a, a, riding a shotgun. A gunship. Yeah. And uh, I, they, they were up on top of the mountain where the call was coming from. I got to the base of the mountain, and it was just a solid cloud. I sent the Cobras and the other 46 back home. Because it wasn't, I wasn't going to put four of us in the clouds. And I air taxied up the side of that mountain. I'd go in for, I had my landing light on so I could see a little bit. And you could see just in front of the, you know, with the landing light, I could see the next tree. And I'd fly to that tree and I'd fly to the next tree and the next tree. And, of course, with the landing light on, I'm attracting bullets from people. And uh, when <laughs> I got to the, happens. Yeah. When, when I got to the top of the mountain... Uh, they had a strobe light, and they were flashing, and I did. And I finally, finally saw it. They would, they could, they told me they could hear me, and they would say, "Come, come this direction." And so I, I found them, and I landed. You know what the emergency medevac was for? A wounded scout dog. <laughs> I land, I picked him up. I didn't even know where to take the damn dog because it was. Uh, I didn't know the hospital where they had a veterinarian. I, I flew it to the hospital, and then the next, the next landing I made was at the general's pad. I flew over to wing headquarters and I woke him up. I was so ticked off. You know, I woke him up and and asked him, I said, you know what I just picked up on an emergency medevac? (laughs) 
and I, I've said a, a few words about the dog. And it really over over the years now, I probably uh, I can see why young Marines uh, they really get attached to their dog, and and he's important to them. And I probably should have just picked him up and shut up. But I, I but we had been told uh, we had a new general showed up shortly after I took the squadron, and he called the four CH forty six pilot, I mean COs, to his office, and this is what he told us. He said the last general had a lot of rules. And you weren't allowed to fly more than a certain hour, number of hours a day. You had weather criteria. You didn't have to go if it was this and that. And he said, we've lost our reputation. And so we're going to get our reputation back, and all of you are expendable. And you're going to do anything they ask you to do. You're going to stay as long as you have to stay, no matter what. And, it, and screw the weather. said, whatever weather, you're going to go in it. And if you can't live with that, I'll find somebody that can. And that's the rules we live by. We were going to do that anyway, but uh, but that was the rule from heaven, and we uh, and we did it. And you didn't feel like you were breaking a rule by going out and trying to save somebody. You yeah. just went and did it. <laughs> yeah. and the public needs to realize that back then, the technology that everyone takes for granted, I mean, flying that 46, which the public will see that as a 47 now, it's a twin-rotored uh, ship, it was an entirely different adventure. I mean, you didn't have all the forward radar. You didn't have all the ways of looking through stuff. It was, but it was all visual. There's more navigational equipment in a Volkswagen or a Cadillac today than we had in our helicopters when we were flying in combat. <laughs> well, there was no—to to fly up into the mountains, up in those—you know, in a just really, really black night, you didn't know from one second to the next whether you were going to slam into the side of the mountain— uh, we want to put four of us went up a canyon one night. Uh, well, three of us. So I left, sent the extra forty six. I just or, put him to, over a marine position before we went up the canyon and had him orbit there because it wasn't room. And the lead cobra went first, and I was following him. And the second cobra was one was a, above me and, and in front. I was in the middle, and the other one was below me. And we were looking for a recon team that was trapped on a. Turned out they were on a ledge on the side of the canyon. The lead cobra went front, and he was, uh, when he got close to the position, he was under fire, so he was shooting. The guy behind me was shooting under me. He, this, the lead turned around and came back, and he was shooting above me. And I turned the landing light on to see where I had to land. And just as, at the second I turned the landing light on, there was the lead cobra. We were so close that our blades meshed. I was looking right at his face, just like I'm looking at you. And uh, I went down, he went up, and the blades didn't hit. When I hit, I went down so fast, I, I hit the water in the river, popped back up, turned it around, and backed up to the ledge because there wasn't room to land on it. I put my, my ramp down and backed up, and the, it was one guy alive. He, he came aboard. We took him home. That's the only time in my career that I ever asked to be relieved. It was about... Four o'clock in the morning when we got back to Marble Mountain, the night, the night medevac package, uh, we, we had replacements come, and we all went to my, my hooch and drank about two or three bottles of whiskey. <laughs> it was, that was the scariest moment of my life. That, that was, uh, and nearly every young guy in their squadron did similar, had similar experiences. It mm -hmm. was, uh, that was a, a, a hell of a way to live. Yeah, I got a note here from Medevac on February the 9th. Flew Medevac today, picked up three missions. Two were easy, but one almost got us. Went to pick up some Marines, one dead, two blown up. Landed on a mine. Shrapnel missed my missed me by inches. Stopped about a quarter of an inch from my ass. That was <laughs> one Medevac. <laughs> and that that was a, a that was a usual. I mean, that, that was not an unusual happening. That mm. was a, that happened uh, repeatedly, and uh, I was uh, okay. I was on my third tour. I had my fortieth birthday uh, there, mm -hmm. and I was old enough to know better. You know, as a, my first two tours, I was uh, I was immortal. Nothing, you know, that I was I was still in my thirties and uh, and young enough to act stupid and and do all these things and didn't didn't bother me. This one bothered me by the. Before in the middle of December, I went on R and R to Hawaii, and to see my wife and kids. We got five days, and uh, the reason I went was to say goodbye to them, because I knew that I couldn't live through the next two months. Uh, that was uh, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was to get on an airplane and come back to Vietnam, because I knew I was going to die. Mm. That uh, 
Well, that was right in the middle of Kingfisher. Yeah. I'm glad you were wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that was 40 years ago. I'm, you know, I'm 81 yeah. years yeah. old. Now. Think <laughs> of that. Yeah. And Duncan, did you do six months and rotate out too, or were you no, lieutenants there for no, a whole year? No, I was year? there for 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I never left the squadron. Some people got to go to a group or something like that, but I never left the squadron. All right. And how did you end up here in South Carolina? Well, I was interested in the restaurant business, and I wanted to find a town that had state government and state university. Having, I, I went to work for Hilton after I got out of the Marine Corps. It was a good business atmosphere for what I wanted to do. How long have you had yesterdays down there? It's, it's really become a feat. You know, it's been in people's novels. It's, you know. Oh, yeah. Pat Conroy had us in his, in his books. But uh, we've been there since uh, October of 1977. Okay. Well, now you know why I was crazy enough to fly helicopters. I'm crazy <laughs> enough to be in a restaurant business. <laughs> you still fly? Oh, no. Huh? Oh, oh. I haven't, haven't quit working at the restaurant business oh. yet. Oh. That, that may come soon, too. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Colonel Ledbetter, when you retired, were you stationed in Beaufort? Is that why you chose to? No. I was at headquarters Marine Corps four different times in Washington, which is horrible. But uh, I was only in a, in a squadron for one year at New River, North Carolina. Uh, I'd never been stationed at Beaufort. I, I used to, uh, when I was instructing in advanced jet program, I used to take cross countries and fly out and visit friends of mine who were at Beaufort. And I'd, I'd come from Beeville, Texas you know, on a weekend, bring a student and fly out to the East Coast and go to happy hour and have a few drinks. And uh, But I'd never I'd never been off the base in, in Beaufort. I didn't, I'd never been downtown. I didn't know what it looked like. I just, and on the next day I'd fly home back to Texas, but uh, uh, I'd never spent any time on the East Coast. But then why did you choose Beaufort? I retired in, in, from Marine Corps in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, we bought a timeshare on Hilton Head to get away from Washington a couple of weeks a year, and we liked, we liked the area. And when I uh, finally just got tired of traffic in Washington, I was living up there, and I had a, a five-speed stick shift sports car. I left for work one morning, and it took me three hours in traffic to get to work, I mean, my civilian job, you know, after I'd gotten out of the Corps. And I walked into the president of the company after three hours and shifting that car at least 50,000 times and just walked in and said, that's it, I quit. And uh, we'd like being in Hilton Head. Mm -hmm. So we, 30 days later, we moved to Hilton Head. Mm -hmm. And after a while, I got sick of the tourist on Hilton Head and we moved across the river to Beaufort. Well, now, have y'all had any unit reunions Oh, yeah. Well, that's how all this got started. We've got about 20, 25 hours of interviews with about 12 or 14 guys that showed up at the uh, reunion. And Waltz is the first one that we've put the finishing touches to. Well, we had a, we had a reunion. The first reunion the squadron had was uh, in, oh. Wa in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. when I was still in the Marine Corps. We had, oh, I, no, I was working. You were just getting out. I had just gotten out and had a civilian job. And, and we probably had 25 of the pilots show up for three or four days. Well, we've had, well, we've had, they have reunions every other year in Pensacola. But our squadron, some for some reason, has always sort of had our own little reunions. We had one in uh, D.C., one in Charlotte, when they uh, put one of our helicopters, which was called Blood, Sweat, and Tears, which was the helicopter that the uh, young fellow that got the Congressional Medal of Honor, that was his helicopter, was put into the uh, North Carolina Museum. So we had a reunion there. We've had a reunion in Beaufort, and we've had one in, uh, one in Columbia. And in Charlotte. And, I mean, and, uh, and, uh, Charleston. Charleston, right. Yeah. So and, we've uh, had, and we're working on another one in October in uh, Washington, in Washington D.C. We're going to go to the Marine Corps uh, Museum. Museum, where Walt is is featured as the normal <laughs> Marine Corps helicopter pilot, if there is such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Since we've mentioned the book club, let's talk about the project. And Clint, I'll start with you since you're the technical end of it. Mm -hmm. Where are we going from here? I've got the one DVD. That's a very good question, uh, Walter. Uh, because of Rafe's death and the fire that burned his house to the ground, I'm actually still looking for the original source tapes. They may be gone. Uh, they may have been reduced to only being digital artifacts on uh, Alan's edit board. Mm -hmm. So it's a serious problem with that. Uh, the uh, 
I think the video project is very sketchy, but that's why I keep talking about I hope that someone would like to write a book about this because with the audio files, it could be resurrected. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's about the most honest thing I can say. Uh, Rafe did put his heart and soul into it, but uh, he never had the ability to get enough uh, financial resources to get it done. And that, that has been a problem throughout the entire project. Well, there has been a real effort, as I mentioned earlier. The World War II vets literally are 1,500 mm-hmm. a day are dying in the country. And folks like John Rainey here in South Carolina have made a big effort to, to do World War II vets. Colonel Ledbetter's 80. I'm not quite 81. as up. 81. Excuse me, sir. I didn't want to. <laughs> Don't cheat me out of a year. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that means you won't get carded next time you go into yesterday. Yeah, you're yeah. 81. Yeah. You know, and in my cohort, we're all in our mid to late 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, a, I was a young lieutenant and captain in back in 1970 and 71. And so memories of Vietnam, a lot of people wanted to forget about it. But more and more recently, particularly younger people younger than, than we, have wanted to get their stories out. Some have been able to write books. One of the easiest ways to do it is what, what you guys have started, and that is just simply a taped interview. Mm-hmm. Because now with technology, that can be saved in a variety of ways. And if somebody is going to write a book, it makes the research easier. And, of course, being an old-fashioned historian, Duncan, when I saw your diary, I just had a hard time giving it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll make it available to them. You know, cop- I just, just okay. got a copy of it for myself, that's all. Yeah, Duncan's got copies of it, and that's, that's what we're hoping for because it would be nice to have good oral histories, have some of these oral histories distributed to the Marine Museum or wherever they could go to Quantico or whatnot, and that is the hope of the project because it is about – what drew me to it actually is that, you know, at that time you had – a young, almost middle-aged fella, and you had a bunch of boys. And even now, I've only seen one time when they got their reunion, the boys and the young fella are still there. There's a lot of honor. There's a lot of things that people don't understand unless you've been involved in it. And that's what the the regular public that's worried about, you know, the Internet and Facebook needs to kind of connect to how we got here. And I would like to see that with the Korean stuff too. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody talks about it being the the forgotten war, but it, it it really and truly is now... In Vietnam, I served with people who also had been Korean War mm-hmm. vets, particularly enlisted folks. First letter to my parents was a, a takeoff on a, a popular song at the time. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Here I am at Camp Pranada. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, I went on to describe what I did every day at, at Marble Mountain. But, you know, I, I wrote uh, Nate, my wife, Nancy, I wrote her every day. And uh, she saved all those letters, and, and I, I pulled them out not too long ago. I pulled out some of them and read them. I never told her anything about what I was doing. I mean, that, all mine was just sort of letters, how are the kids, how are you doing, and what, you know, uh, I had a good day. Uh, you know, that was, mm-hmm. I didn't want her to worry, so I, those letters are absolutely useless. You know, they don't say a thing. I just... Uh, you were fibbing. But, yeah. right, but, but, but in a way, that, a lot. that, t- that also tells a lot. Because what you told the folks back home was what you wanted them to hear. Mm. Yeah. Um, you didn't talk a whole lot about the bad stuff that happened. You'd oh. talk about the funny things like the day that the 53 blew over the four-holer with a major in it. And, <laughs> uh, the, the night the guy jumped into the Christmas tree. or <laughs> and, um, that was, and that the guy that jumped into the Christmas tree was Duncan McCray. <laughs> because... I, Walt, old Walter Ledbetter came in the back door of the club, the Oak Club at Marble Mountain, with what we called a can gun. You take the metal cans and take both ends out of them, and we use helicopter blade tape to put them together. And the last can, you left the butt end on it and stuck holes in it. And then you'd pour lighter fluid or alcohol down the can and stuff a tennis ball in there and somebody would use it like a bazooka. Somebody behind you would light it and would blow that tennis ball out. I stepped into the club with my ten- with my can gun and tried to knock the Christmas tree off the stage. And and I hit it three or four times, but it wouldn't fall down. And so to keep his CO from being a failure, my good <laughs> lieutenant ran and tackled the Christmas tree. You know? <laughs> Knocked it off the stage and ended up standing there with... Uh, the lights hanging off of me. <laughs> and, those, some, and, and my wife, about a month later, took one of the kids to the dispensary in Santa Ana, California, which is a helicopter base. And the doctor that was 
taking care of them, looked at her and said, are, are, you're Nancy Ledbetter. I said, are you Walt Ledbetter's wife? And she said, yes. He said, do you know what your husband did? And he told her about the Christmas tree. You know, <laughs> <laughs> He had been there and just had just gone home. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, gentlemen, we need to wind this up. Alfred's giving me the sign. Colonel, I'm going to let you go first. Any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners? No, I just, I just want to tell you that, uh, that it, I had uh, probably 45 sons in that squadron, all young men who were just really people to be proud of, and they should be you know, more than that. I had 225 or 30 uh, troops, and they were all brave, good, and just did a hell of a job, and I'm proud of them, and uh, always, always have been. Okay. Thank you, sir. Duncan? I'll just remember your veterans. All right. Thank you. And Clint? Well, I just want to say is that I do hope that, like Walter Edgar was saying, anybody out there um, that has a story, it'd be nice to, uh, to, to bring it to somebody before it disappears forever. You know, I mean, and that's, that's important. And we have the technology and the ability to save these things now, and it should be done. All right. Colonel Walt Ledbetter, Duncan McRae. Clint Chalmers, people involved with the Peach Bush Book Club. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and normally I say I hope you enjoyed today's journal, but I'm not sure when you're talking about men serving their country and really the acts of heroism and the courage that they displayed that you would use the term enjoy. I hope you learned something today. Vietnam is ancient history to most folks in America. It's a war not quite as forgotten as Korea. But thousands of young South Carolinians served in Vietnam, and it was an experience that none of us will ever forget. And as a general population, it's one that we as South Carolinians and Americans should never forget. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next week on The Journal, I'll be talking with Mark Smith of the University of South Carolina, who's written a sensory history entitled Camille, 1969, Histories of a Hurricane. The feeling, the pressure of this hurricane was something that people commented on a great deal, and their bodies were beaten by rain, by sand. The sheer power of this event kind of crushed them physically almost, and their skin was rendered raw. Join me for Walter Edgar's journal each Friday at noon here on ETV Radio. ¶¶